to another episode of the Sawdust and Fire podcast. We are your host. I am Hunter Johnson. And I'm Thomas Baldridge. Well, Thomas, I think we need to jump right into this one. You know, um, a lot of our podcast, and I think Landon Legacy's podcast also, are stemmed from stuff we read on social media. And I know you and I have touched on some of this. Most everybody's touched on some of this um, off and on. But uh, basically, I want to do a podcast here today. And I'm pretty much talking to the folks on Arkansas Deer Hunters Facebook page and Missouri Deer Hunters Facebook page. Because I've got a lot of stuff that I'd like to for me and you to try to address a little bit. And... Um, that's where all of these questions are coming from. That's where all these little topics are coming from. And it's, uh, since we're right here, probably full swing of the deer rut for a lot of folks, uh, in the Midwest and, and in the, uh, Southeast, I think it's a great time to hit on some of these. Oh, absolutely. And, and I don't think it's just a couple groups on Facebook. Uh, I think it is, um, uh, you know, far more, vast of a congregation than that uh oh, definitely. definitely i think i think there's just a lot of um uh ignorance out there regarding these things or old wives tales that we believed and bought into it kind of sort of for whatever reason we thought made sense and now you know there's research out there that has you know established some pretty good facts on some of these things that's right. That's right. And this isn't, you know, some of some of this we've done some of our own research on. Um, you know, when the peak of the rut here is at my place, I've definitely done the research on that over the last several years by by um, using a fetal scale and removing fetuses on late shot does to see when they were bred. But a lot of this information, you don't have to take our word for it. It's coming from uh, QDMA, which is now NDA. Um, it's coming from MSU Deer Lab. It's coming from uh, uh, University of Florida Deer Lab. A um, lot of people. Yeah, Tennessee. Um, there is a lot of uh, great uh, PhD professors out there that are sharing this information that they have uh, master and graduate students doing a lot of this, uh, uh, these surveys. And, you know, we have learned a lot over the years by these GPS tracking systems on uh, deer across the nation and on turkey and on quail and on ducks. And, you know, um, if you're not keeping up with some of this latest information that's coming out and you're all you do is hunt and you don't try to take the time to learn a little bit about the wildlife that you love, uh, chances are some of these things we're going to talk about are going to hit pretty hard um, because what we thought we knew back in grandpa's time or in dad's time, depending on how old you are or uh, what you used to read in outdoor life magazines, we've uh, debunked a lot of that with these tracking collars over the years. And we've learned that that's just not how things are. Yeah. Technology has played a major role in some of these studies. That's right. That's right. Well, let's dive right into some of this. Um, the rut. So one thing we hear often 
is, boys, the rut's going to be early this year. Um, well, I think the rut's going to be late this year. Boy, we didn't have much of a rut this year. Um, well, due to, due to the moon phase or due to warm temperatures, uh, looks like the rut's going to be early or the rut's going to be delayed. What's your thoughts on some of that, Thomas? Well, I, I think I think there can be a slight variance based on a few factors, but for the most part, you know, I'm giving you the what these biologists always give me these crappy answers, really. Uh, you know, depending and for the most part, and they always try to leave themselves some wiggle room. But for the most part, um, you know, your your rut's happening right around the same time every year, and a lot of that is due on due to the species of deer, uh, you know, that I think goes back genetically. I mean, I think this is a very commonly accepted deal among all, all biologists and, and wildlife folks, you know, that, that species of deer, for example, there's a, there's a species of deer in, uh, I think it's Southeast Texas. Uh, and they, they come into rut real early and that, that goes back, to when they were restocking deer and, and doing all those things. So those genetics are, are still there and those markers go off of where those deer, you know, originated from. And a lot of that is driven by, uh, you know, the photo period light during the day. Um, well, that's right. You know, and there's Florida, Florida deer that come Florida. in mid summer. Yeah. Florida, Florida. I, hmm. I've got a, a friend that was hunting, I think Fort Benning, Georgia area could be, could be wrong on that, but, um, there's an area down there that has like, it's very close together, but three different, uh, you know, genetic type deer down there and they come in at different times. So they can have rut happening at different times, but it is not, you know, based off of a cool front, um, uh, or, or these other factors, it, it goes back to their genetics and photo period and when historically, you know, those deer came in. But I do think what people see and attribute to, you know, why why we may hear a guy say, well, that cold front, you know, it got them, it got them chasing doe or whatever. Well, what what I think there are factors there that makes that be a perception from the hunter. You know, one, the hunter gets fired up and is in the woods on that cold front. Nobody likes hunting when it's 80 degrees and you're fighting wasps and mosquitoes and everything else. And then two, you know, those cold snaps can increase uh, activity, you know, caloric intake and all that kind of stuff. And so there may be more deer movement during that period. So what they're seeing is, hey, I, I see deer moving and, and a buck's chasing the doe. Well, uh, my dad, probably a month ago, saw a young spike in the food plot trying to mount a doe and she wouldn't have nothing to do with it, you know, well. You know, I always say them boys are, are mostly always ready. I know there's some things there that, that they're not actually always ready to. They think they are. But, um, but you know, that doe, she, she's not ready till she's ready. That, that's, that's right. And that's, you know, a buck is technically ready from the time he sheds his velvet until his horns fall off. He's technically ready. But that doesn't mean that's when the rut starts. That doesn't mean that's when the doe's ready. So, you know, this is all 100% based on the length of day, photo period. And, you know, 
the variations that we see, I agree with you that that is historically, you know, wherever those deer come from, whatever, you know, I would say that, that the rut at your place is probably on average a week or two earlier uh, being west of me than what mine is here. And I think that's just, um, you know, just how things have kind of happened over history. But regardless, I mean, the way to tell, if you really want to tell when your does are getting bred, then you need a history of pulling fetuses out of does. Now, this is the part of wildlife management that's not so glamorous and, and clean cut. This is the this is the side that you're going to get your hands dirty and people don't really like to do. But you can pick up roadkill does in January, February, and March um, and remove fetuses, and you can buy a fetal scale, and you can measure that fetus and tell exactly within 24 hours of when that doe was bred. It's pretty dang accurate. And yeah, that's, that's the shocking part is how how accurate they've got that nailed down to. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, that was developed by uh, uh, QDMA. My mind just went blank. But the the main guy, the main main leader uh, of QDMA, boy, I hate getting old and you, you got it right on the tip of your tongue and then your mind goes blank. But uh, you got uh, me thinking now, who, Kip Adams or? No, no, no. The the older gentleman, gray hair, gray beard. Oh, uh, um. I can see his face and I can hear his voice, but I just can't think of his name right now. But anyway, it'll probably come to me before we finish the podcast. But anyway, he was involved in, in developing and designing the fetal scale and and it works. And I have had one for probably seven or eight years now. And I use it religiously. You know, I every deer that we kill on the place, we're getting a weight off of it. We're pulling jaw bones out of it. And the does early season were checking for lactation. You know, that's telling us if they uh, have been nursing a fawn or not, if they had, if they had a fawn this year and if they're not getting, you know, if you can't milk them and get milk to shoot out early season, then we're even cutting it open to find out if there's dried up milk in there. And that will tell us, you know, if maybe she lost a fawn, she got bred, she had a fawn, but she lost it uh, this year. So, um, but as it gets later in the season, once we get up to mid-December, Christmas time maybe, and, and on, of course, our season here, we can shoot does till the end of February. So we have a great opportunity, and we have a lot of DMAP tags. So for years on purpose, I have saved anywhere from two to ten um, DMAP tags to shoot late-season does just to figure out exactly when these does were getting bred. And for us here... 90% of the fetuses I've checked, the does have been bred November 22nd to December the 8th. That seems to be when, and that's a pretty broad window, but you know, some of those are kind of outliers that, but that week probably of those 95% of those have been this week right here, the week, uh, from, um, uh, the 22nd, the week of, of Thanksgiving, the week of 22nd up till about uh, December the 1st. And then, you know, I've had a couple of December 5th and a, maybe a December the 8th over the years. But that seems to be when the majority of them are getting bred. Now, a lot of people confuse seeing a, doe, a, a buck trying to mount a doe 
with the rut and seeing does, uh, bucks chasing does as the rut. Uh, but that's pre-rut. The bucks are ready. He's trying. He's he's spitting game, and uh, the doe ain't having it. So uh, you'll see a lot of that pre-rut, and then there's going to be some outliers, you know, even even past that. But you know, I think probably for about a three to four week period, you'll start seeing a few does come in early and get bred, and you'll have some outliers that come in late and get bred. But I think that that main peak of the rut for any area regardless of moon phase, barometric pressure, temperature, whatever, I think over a period of time, you're going to find that that happens within about seven to 10 days, the same time every single year. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, your deer um, at your place are, you know, unless you're in one of these little weird areas that, you know, may have some different species. You're kind of like on a, on a borderline, you, you know, you get on one side of the County and it's one thing and something else on the other, you know, historic, I think for the most part, you're right there at it. Now I want to tell you another deal that, that I do. Um, and it's not as accurate. Okay. Um, but in the spring I've got cameras and maybe a little bait, uh, from time to time, um, I try not to run bait that time of year, but, um, when I see my first fawn on camera, uh, you know, with this mama, the first fawns I see on camera, I, I subtract about 200 days because that's a gestation period. And, and one guy says 193 to 205 days is kind of the, that gestation period, depending on, on your deer. So 200 days, give or take, you know, a few days there. So that can put me within a week, you know, maybe two week period of, of that, of that time frame. And so I, you know, just based on camera survey, sometimes, you know, when I'm looking at, and I, and it's about, you know, fawning time and I get that first fawn on camera, I'm like, Hey, look here. And I rewind the clock about 200 days. And it, it puts me in a in a good ballpark, not nearly as accurate as you know fetal survey, but puts me in a good ballpark. That's right. That's right. And you know, if you're not seeing the rut on your property, you're not seeing chasing. I think a lot of times that's your own fault. I think a lot of times that's because your deer density is a little bit too high. You know, people, I, I hear all the time people say, well, I don't want to shoot no does because it's does that attract the bucks. That is true, but not like what you're thinking. So when you take a place that has a fairly high deer density and you've got all of these does coming in the heat uh, around the same time, and and on your property, there may be multiple does in heat all kind of there together. A buck doesn't have to get up and roam far to find a doe that's in heat. He can lay there in a thicket and she'll walk by him. He can stand up, chase her around the thicket a little bit, breed her, and then they can start laying down, hanging out together, and you never see a lot of chasing. Now, if you can thin that doe herd if you do have a high density and you can thin that doe herd down by shooting a lot of your doe 
uh, for the year early prior to rut, then you have a fewer number of doe that year. Uh, we we know that as they breed and as fawns are born and does are having twins, that that buck to doe ratio is not going to get too far out of whack in the long run. But we can thin the does down prior to the rut each year, and we can see a more streamlined rut to where you may have two or three different bucks chasing a doe that happen to come in heat, and he's having to get up and roam and look for that doe that might be in heat. And that's what we look for. That's what we want um, to see. We want to see that chasing, and we want to see that peak of the rut uh, thing every year. So if I'll you're not you. seeing... I'll tell you another thing I, I did one year, and, and so this is still not, you know, hard data. You do something one time, it's not hard data. But I got that fawn picture, that first fawn picture, or first two or three fawn pictures on, you know, say 20 cameras. When I saw those first fawn pictures, rewind the clock 200 days. Then I went back to my hunter observation data that we collect, you know, every day. And yep. I was like, okay. This was around November, we'll just say I'm making up a day here, November 17. I go back in that hunter observation book and I look, you know, the few days before and a few days after, and I'm like, oh man, look, we're seeing, you know, five deer here, three deer here, 11 deer here. And then we dropped off to not seeing any for a few days. And That's I'm right. like, it kind of all makes sense, you know? Right. Yep. And you know, this goes back, I don't know, we've done a couple of different episodes here where we talked about keeping records. Whether yes. you're a landowner and you're a habitat manager um, or you're just hunting public, keeping records on what you're seeing, what you're killing, getting weights, pulling jawbones, um, hunter observation surveys, it can help you tremendously. And, and I bet... If you keep records, I want you to contact us. Send Thomas or I a a message, an email, a PM, something, and let us know that you keep records. I bet, you know, and and we've got a good group of listeners. We, uh, you know, we're we're preaching to the choir most of the time, but I still bet you less than five percent of our listeners keep any records on what they kill, uh, what they see on hunts, uh, doe weights mature buck weights, um, pulling jaw bones, trying to age what they're seeing, what they're killing. I, I bet, I bet it's fewer than we ever dreamed. Actually, so, speaking of that in our last DMAP meeting, which was primarily for one to three counties. Um, there's a couple things in particular that they talked about with data collection during that, that, that surprised me. The first thing, the main thing that surprised me was the question was asked, how many of y'all are keeping hunter observation data? And I thought there ain't going to be a single hand go up in here other than mine and yours. But what, what I was surprised by is there was probably three other people. I'm just guessing that were doing hunter observation data. Yep. The, the other thing that this was the first DMAP meeting that I've brought my dad to. And his takeaway after that meeting changed the way he views all of this. And that was really surprising to me because this, I'm not picking on our, our presentation uh, by, by our 
biologist, but this was not really an earth shattering or very informative DMAP meeting because they were trying to cover some new new things with DMAP, new regulations, new tagging, new new apps, new this. Uh, they were really focused on in this meeting uh, for this year because it's all brand new to us and we're you know having to deal with some changes. But my dad walked out of there and said, you mean to tell me that the information that we are giving Game and Fish off of our DMAP stuff is impacting how they assess state regulations and zone regulations and county regulations and that I think the number was 90% or 95% of the information they get uh, in this regard comes from DMAP clubs and that greatly influences uh, what they do statewide that's the biggest pool of, of of research data that they get is from dmap clubs my dad was so blown away with that it lit his fire at 73 years old to um to do to to i mean he was already doing it he just didn't understand really why he's like well whatever you know whatever you say and uh and now he's like oh i see the importance of that and, and how it's not just helping our own farm, you know, it's helping us right here, you know, on, on our acreage, but it's also helping the state and, and our county and our zone. And so it made a big impact on him. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I'm sure other states still do this. Game and Fish used to do what they call shoot herd health. and. Yeah. They would all get together. This would be in the spring. They would do it at night with spotlights, multiple trucks, multiple employees, and they would ride around shining a spotlight on WMAs or on private property where they had permission, uh, spotlight a deer, pull out a rifle, pull the trigger, and kill it. And, you know, bucks had already lost their horns, so they're killing some bucks. They're killing some does, and they are checking – weights and they're checking age and they're checking uh um overall health uh kidney fat uh, a lot of different things but one of the main things they were doing were extracting fetuses and determining uh what percentage of the does were pregnant and what percentage of those were pregnant with a single fawn or twins and if those fawns were a buck or a doe or what they were well what they found was that the majority of these does were pregnant with twins. And most of the time, one was a buck, one was a doe, and they had different uh, fathers. So that got to be so consistent that they actually stopped doing the, the herd health shoot in the spring and started relying more on our DMAP data to help determine uh I make a lot of these decisions that they make for the statewide regulations. So it's very important to take notes and uh, keep records and be honest to yourself and to everything. I mean, when we weigh, I will, I will keep a couple of different scales at each location, plus a, maybe a new one in a box. And I want to compare a couple of scales. I want to see, you know, if one just looks far out, Let's pull out a different scale and let's try it and make sure that that weight's right because I want these weights to be to the pound and I want them to be precise. I don't want, you know, we had a scale go haywire uh, a couple years ago at, at our hill farm and uh, dough weights were 
scale was acting up and the dough weights were kind of all over the place. And uh, we had to throw some of that data out. I'm still sick over it because we basically lost a lot from not having those specific dough weights. But, you know, that is the number one thing. If you're shooting 10 does off a property or 20, and, and some of these clubs are shooting two and 300 does off of a property, and you can watch those dough weights prior to you doing habitat work be one thing and watch them increase over the years post doing habitat work, that's going to tell you a lot about the health of your herd and, and about the good that you've done um, across the property. Yeah, absolutely. Before we start talking about some of the nutritional stuff, <clears throat> what about this deal where guys say, I don't want to shoot the does because they attract the bucks. Yeah. So that's, um, you know, I, I kind of touched on that a little bit while ago. And, you know, if you want to see the chasing and stuff go on, then you've got to pop some does if you're in a place with a high deer density. Um, you know, here, we never used to see bucks chasing does. And people would talk about it. And I'm like, what? You know, we, we don't see that. They're getting bred. We're seeing um, fawns. Um, we're seeing twins. So that means they must be healthy, right? Um, but we're not seeing that chasing going on. Well, when we started shooting does every year, we started seeing an increase in that chasing. Um, we started seeing that, uh, more defined peak of the rut. I mean, I sat on a stand day before yesterday and probably saw 20 deer in two hours and two, only two of them were does. The rest were bucks. Now, nothing I wanted to shoot. I had a couple of decent eight pointers. Uh, one might've even made the argument he was four and a half but wasn't anything really mature that I wanted to shoot. Um, but they were all chasing these two does around and around and around, and they never really got out of good sight for two hours. And I ended up having to howl like a coyote so I could get down off the stand um, <laughs> after dark. So You want to give us that howl? <laughs> well, butter not here. My wife heard it. She said, first I thought it was an owl. And then it sounded kind of like a coyote. And then there was some yelping. She said, then the coyotes got stirred up on the other side of me. And I said, well, that was me. I just trying to make a racket to run these deer off. I was going to shoot a doe so I could climb down. But I had a couple of spikes come in and they were kind of getting involved in the chase a little bit. And then as it got dark, I was waiting. I've got one particular buck, a seven point. That's a, that's a really nice, unique deer. And, uh, you know, he's, he's very mature. He's wide, he's heavy, but he's only got seven points that he's my target buck this year. I'd rather shoot him than a, some 10 and 12 points I've got on camera, but I was kind of waiting on him to come in. I'd had him there a couple of days ago on camera and he didn't. And then it got too dark. I couldn't pick out where my spikes had went to. And I sure didn't want to try to shoot a doe and kill a spike. And so it was just ended up having to howl, uh, and, my my plan was pop a doe, run them all off, and then I can climb down, do what I need to. But it didn't work out for me. Well, what about um, deer density slash carrying capacity and that and that kind of deal? Let's, let's man, that's so that is the I mean that is the key to everything. So you know a lot of people talk about well my deer density is too high, or I don't have enough deer. Well, deer density number of deer per square mile we don't have any idea what it is here um 
I used to try to figure that out. Game and Fish used to try to figure out deer densities for certain areas, but Game and Fish doesn't even have a clue now what the deer density is for most any given area or across the state. Um, because deer density is kind of a, a generic term that really doesn't mean much. Um, you know, your deer density, if you're not doing any habitat work and you have a completely closed canopy forest and you have no early cessational habitat, no understory growing, you know, that's four foot tall and less, then if you have more than one or two deer per square, uh, per square mile or one or two deer uh, per 70 or 80 acres, then it your deer density can be too high. Um, because here's the facts on that, and a study that Dr. Craig Harper done said that a closed canopy forest will only produce about 50 pounds of forage annually that a deer can utilize uh, for food. We know that 70 to 80% of a deer's diet comes from natural browse in the woods that he can walk along and eat and that stuff that's like four foot tall and down. And it's native natural stuff growing in your, in your timber stand or in your old fields. And if you don't have that, then at, at, at closed canopy timber only producing 50 pounds of forage a year, it would take 50 to 70 acres to support one deer for one year. So if you've got two or three on 50 to 70 acres, your deer density is too high for the property that you have. Now, if you thin that back, you can produce three to 5,000 pounds of forage annually per year that makes good deer food, deer habitat. Now you can support more than one deer per acre. Um, I'm not going to do the math on all this. I've done it before, uh, and, and I don't have it wrote down here in front of me. But every deer on your property is eating a seven to 10 pounds of forage every single day of their life. With 70 to 80% of that coming from natural browse, it takes a lot of natural browse to support those deer for the year. Plus, you've got these times, high stress periods where crops aren't growing good, hot summer here in the South, uh, food plots aren't growing good. Um, they need that browse that time of year and also in the winter when the rut's over and they're trying to recover all the crops have been cut your food plots aren't doing a whole lot at that time of year they've been browsed pretty heavy you need those greenbrier and blackberry and and sapling twigs and uh stump sprouts and all of that stuff for these deer to feed on to sustain them through the winter time so if you've got all that in place and you've got 1.5 deer per acre you can sustain that and you can grow big bucks off of that so to me deer density is always something that is dependent on the habitat that you have available you agree with that yes yes i, I think that's right i mean you know it's just kind of it's kind of like this uh if you think back to the old days i know most of us are not not there anymore but you know when there was only so much food to go around, you had a bunch of brothers and sisters, you got to the table early and you ate fast. That's right. I, mean, I had an old man that used to tell me that every year for Christmas, their mom would spend a couple of days and, and she would, uh, she would bake a ham and man, she would put 
everything she had into baking this ham and she would take it and she'd take a big piece of it and she'd hang it from the ceiling with a string and she'd set a chair underneath it and she'd let all the kids line up on Christmas morning and they had to keep her hands behind her back and they could stand on that chair and reach up and start chewing on that ham. And about the time they got a good mouthful, she'd kick a chair out from underneath them and holler next. And uh, we can't do that with our deer herd. We've got <laughs> to, uh, we got to provide, actually provide them something to eat. And That's right. 24 seven and you know and that kind of goes back to uh um the number of mature bucks you can expect to hold on a property i hear this one quite a bit um well how many mature bucks could i expect to hold on my 40 acre farm well that's a million dollar question it could be 10 it could be none depends on what habitat you've got in place for them and what you've got around you to help support them you're not going to hold them they're going to move back and forth, but I'm talking about when I say hold, I'm talking about a lot of the time that deer is bedding on your property throughout the day. That's yeah, what I'm going so, to hold. So we just had this conversation a few days ago. My sister shot a nice buck and Caleb and I have been watching that buck on camera, you know, since late summer. Uh, you know, we've been, we've been seeing this, very, very um distinct rack and we've been watching him over and over and over again and when when she shot him and we get him back here to clean you know i was telling all of my family you know this is a big deal it's a big accomplishment you know because not only have we you know so to speak raised this deer uh, but we were able to harvest this deer and and you know, one of our neighbors wasn't. Not that I'm against the neighbors shooting them. I'm just saying our habitat improvements that we've been making on this property for five years have contributed to us being able to hold that deer on our property more frequently than he's been in, in other areas. And it's not just been during the night. You know, he's been here during the day. He's been here at night. He's you know, he's been hanging in this area a lot. Now, we've got a couple others doing the same thing. But uh, five, rewind that clock five years ago, and I would have good bucks on camera, but maybe it was all night photos. Maybe as soon as they come out of bachelor groups, you know, and disperse pretty much, I didn't get them again. Um, it was also uh, common that I would have bucks show up about October that I didn't have on camera at all. Just poof, all of a sudden here they are. And right. so my anecdotal deal is because of habitat improvements that we've made and the things that we're doing here on the farm, we're able to hold more and we are also able to keep them a majority of the time. Now, free range deer, you ain't keeping them all the time. That's too many factors. Uh, especially on small property, you know, uh, if you got 10,000, 20,000 acres, you might be holding a guy all the time. But, um, but so that, that was a contributing factor for me and kind of a, uh, a reward in a way to okay. say, Hey, your, your efforts, man, look here, they're, they're paying off. You know, this is paying off. So I've got a deer that, uh, you know, and, and, and so that's, yeah, what you said was exactly right. So 
if uh, and people say, well, how do you know if these deer are staying on your property? Well, that's game cameras. So we've got out, you know, a thousand acres here, actually 1100. And, you know, I've got out like 12 cameras and, you know, I don't have all of those on a food source. Uh, you know, some of them are on a bait pile. Some of them are in pinch points. Uh, some of them are in travel corridors that, that are known. Some of them are on the edges of bedding areas. So I'm getting a pretty good idea of what's coming and going and hanging out on the property. Um, got a neighbor uh, right next to me, uh, actually a couple neighbors, and we compare notes some. Well, if 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 I've got a deer that I'm seeing every afternoon, if it's getting dark at 5.30 and I'm seeing a deer come in, uh, walk past a camera or hang out in front of a camera every afternoon before dark, that deer is bedding on my property during the day. Now, if I'm only seeing that deer at two, three or four o'clock in the morning on, on my cameras, chances are he's coming from a long ways off. That could be just right next door. That could be four or five miles away. Um, if I'm only seeing him in the dead of the night, but I've got a deer that had been on me the majority of the time since back in September and the I had him the opening day of rifle season I wasn't here I had to be gone but I had him in front of a camera for over an hour opening day of rifle season then he disappeared and I thought well he probably got over on a neighbor or something and somebody killed him and I just haven't heard about it so I text the neighbors a picture of the deer and I said, Hey, have y'all seen this deer? Um, not in a couple of days, but he was here not before last. And they sent me a picture back and we've had, they had had nighttime pictures of him since September and they were getting pictures two, three or four o'clock in the morning of this deer. Well, I was getting pictures before dark every day. So I knew that that deer was betting on me during the day and roaming around and visiting them off and on during the middle of the night, but coming back on me. Now he's disappeared and I'm worried. It's a week later. I'm worried, well, did he get shot or what happened? Well, no, now I can rest assured neighbor had a picture of him again, middle of the night day before yesterday. So, um, I know he's still alive somewhere. He's just a mature buck and that's what mature bucks do. He started feeling a little pressure from people hunting around us and shots going off and, uh, more of a presence from, uh, hunters being in the woods and traffic up and down the roads and he's just he's just changed his pattern a little bit so i'm still hoping he pops back up but that's how the deer seem to kind of act and move around um so does that lead us into nutrition i think so because we uh yeah yeah i think we and we've talked a little bit about it but but Let's talk a little bit about nutrition before we talk about lockdown. So a lot of times I've been in meetings, I've been in different places, and we talk about what do deer eat. And it seems like the the number one answer I always hear is soybeans. Um, you know, you can ask a room full of people, what do deer eat? And the number one answer seems to be soybeans. Then you start getting corn and then you start getting different things. But, um, and that's where that's true. They do eat that. Acorns. And, uh, guys around me all say, oh, they're eating acorns. Yep. Yep. A lot of it's acorns. But, um, you know, what about, um, and then do deer, deer do eat those. And acorns are a big part of their diet a month or two out of the year. 
soybeans around here are a big part of their diet a couple of months out of the year. Uh, um, corn is a big part of their diet in the winter because nobody does any habitat work and everybody has that dad blame corn feeders. So corn's a big part of their diet. But when we talk about deer nutrition and deer food, it's what we mentioned a while ago. It's the it's the native natural browse and forage that a deer can, when he's laying in his bed, he can munch on. He can stand up, take two or three steps and feed and lay back down. Um, it's what he walks through the woods when he's going from this point to that point. He's walking through the woods munching on as he goes. Um, anytime I've sat on a stand and watched deer come through the woods, they're feeding on various things as they walk along. And, you know, a lot of people uh, uh, put all of their stock in their food plots that they plant and um, the feeders that they put up. But a a deer that's standing in front of a feeder five to ten minutes a day, that's not the majority of his diet. That's right. A deer that's showing up in a food plot for 20 minutes in the middle of the night that's not the majority of his diet. The majority of, of most deer's diet will always come from natural forage and browse that we need to have plenty of if we're going to hold these deer. Yeah. And and the other thing people also forget is the natural browse and what its nutritional content in, it typically it, it typically exceeds. And if it doesn't, it, it matches anything else you can put out there. That's right. I mean, you, you get to looking at, at protein and all these kinds of things. I mean, it's, it's hard to beat, you know, some, some natural stuff. And one of my favorite things to do is, uh, you know, summertime or whatever, while I might be doing whatever work on the farm, maybe even just checking cameras. Uh, one of my favorite things is to look at the kind of browse pressure that I'm seeing on things like American pokeweed, uh, American beautyberry, you know, th those types of things that it's very obvious and noticeable, the, the brows that, uh, that, that you can just drive and drive it side by side and, and see, you know? Yeah. You can ask a lot of people most any time of the year, well, what are your deer feeding on right now? And they don't have any idea. Right. They, they can guess what they think it might be, but they're not actually getting out and looking at things and looking at browse lines and looking at, at uh, stuff that's been nipped off to know what they're actually feeding on. And that can change pretty rapidly based on conditions or the, the height of the plant that they were feeding on, you know, changes nutritional values as it ages or, you know, weather can impact things and, you know, it, it, it just loses their, its appeal to them. So, you know, a big variety of things that deer can naturally browse on is always a great thing. Yep. And I think that leads us into this call and lockdown phase. And uh, so what are the, how are most guys hunting that are really affected hard by the lull and the lockdown phase? Um, people say, well, they're in the lockdown phase because I hadn't seen a deer in over a week now. Um, or I've hunted the last three days and I ain't seen nothing. They got to be in the lockdown phase or we're in the middle of the lull. Most of the time, those guys are sitting in a food plot or over a feed pile. Yeah. That are saying this. 
Yeah. You know, if, if you're hunting, if you've got known bedding thickets and you're hunting close to these bedding thickets and they're quality bedding thickets, I'm not talking about where you hinge cut a half a dozen trees and call it your bedding area. I'm talking about good bedding thickets. Um, chances are you're not seeing much difference in the lockdown phase versus uh, when deer are actively chasing and uh, pre-rut. Um, they may be with does and they may not be moving long distances and they may not be running and chasing and out cruising for a doe, but you're still seeing activity. And uh, if that doe's still in heat, you know, for if the buck's hanging out with her for 20 to 30 hours or, or however long they hang out with one uh, during the lockdown phase when he's uh, when they're laying together and, and breeding every chance they get um, they're uh, the, the, they're still getting up and moving. They're still getting up and feeding. And if you're hunting close to the places that they're bedding uh, or they're locked down at, you're still going to see a lot of activity, especially uh, daylight and dusk time of the day. Yeah. Yeah, peak peak activity time of the day. You, usually, I mean, if you put in some time, you're going to see deer. That's right. If you're not, you need to make some changes. Need to make some changes. Yes, sir. Um, I'll tell you one thing that I've noticed, which I've been, you know, this entire property, you know, been working on now for five years. And um, we recently did a, a another really big TSI project. And... I've tried to do a little edge feathering. It's still not where I want it uh, around this one particular food plot. And this, this area had quite a few cedars. Well, instead of hacking those cedars, we cut and drop cedars. And I mean, everywhere. And then also did hack and squirt on the hardwoods that were there. And in one month's time, it may have not even have taken a week the deer activity in this area has increased exponentially. Yes, and, sir. And I attribute that to all of that cover that we just dropped and left right there on the ground. And now the, the long-term residual impact of that is, you know, those cedars are not going to grow again. There's still going to be those skeletons there uh, even after we burn. And we still hacked a bunch of hardwoods, reducing that basal area. And so now what we, we should see is a very good vegetation growth, uh, again, back to native browse. And they've got native browse and they've got security and shelter and, uh, you know, places to hide and bed and, and increased bedding opportunity and bedding areas. And, man, and it also has made it more difficult for a buck to cruise through the woods and look into the food plot with the cedar carcasses and all the edge feathering work, it's a lot harder for him to stand in the woods a hundred yards out and look into that food plot and say, well, there's nothing there. Let's go on. He's got to come out there and check it out. That's right. That's right. And statistics have shown that if a, if a buck, if a mature buck can't stand off in the woods and see into your food plot, he's 10 times more likely to enter that food plot uh, to check for does to see what's happening in it. Yep. Um, you know, and that's, yeah, I, I hear deer hunters say a lot, man, the big bucks hang out over on this corner of the farm. This, this is where we always see the big bucks. We don't really see them anywhere else. We got some does and some little bucks. Well, 
do you ever go over there and try to figure out why? Try to figure out, is it a food source? Is it is it cover? Is it uh, bedding? Is it, um, why are they hanging out? Is it more seclusion? Why are they hanging out there more? And why don't you do something to try to increase that across the entire property? Um, now, if that happens to be, if what they're hanging out in happens to be an invasive, and I hear people say that, well, this is where all my bush honeysuckle is, and that's where all the big deer hang out. Well, that's probably because the rest of your property sucks so bad that the only place they can hang out is in is a patch of thick invasives. Or I've heard people say it with kudzu. Man, we just got bigger deer hang out over on this side of the farm. I even had one guy tell me the the deer on this side of the farm are bigger, but that's because they're eating kudzu over there, and kudzu make deer a lot bigger. No, they're probably hanging out, bigger deer are probably hanging out over there because they've got more bedding and seclusion and the rest of your farm probably sucks so bad and, and is lacking that, that that's the only place that the mature deer in the area have got. And, you know, if we could improve all of that across the entire farm, you would even see a bigger jump in the deer that you're growing and holding on the property. Yep. Yep, absolutely. What about rubs? Rub, rubs and scrapes, man. I, I hear a lot of controversy on rubs and scrapes. Man, I hear this every year, and this gets on my nerves so bad. Only big bucks rub big trees. I hear that people send me a picture of a tree that's eight-inch diameter, and the, and the deer's rubbed it pretty hard, got the bark all tore off of it. And and the next next thing they say is, you know, this is a stud that's rubbed this. Well, put a camera on it. And I think you're going to be surprised. I've got two or three of those spots. I've got one in particular that I put a camera on for the last four or five years. And every deer in the woods rubs that tree. And I have as many spikes and little four-pointers rub it as I do big bucks. Um most of the time, it is the smaller bucks that are checking it out and rubbing it. I even have does check it out and rub their head on it. So then people say, oh, well, that's because that's a community scrape. Looky here. Here's here's the deal. Um, bucks are going to rub trees. They may rub a tree of any size from as big as your finger to as big as the top of your leg. And they may never, ever come back to it again. They may rub it once and done. They may rub it once and another buck comes along and rubs right behind where they were. They may have every deer in the woods come to that tree and check it out and rub on it. You may have a certain buck that has a rub line that he rubs every night for a couple of weeks. But that doesn't mean that other bucks don't, don't rub it too. Um, the size of the tree is no indication of the size of the buck that's rubbing on it. Um, I was so shocked. I used to think this also, and I was so shocked when I put a camera on it and saw as many spikes and four points and even does rubbing on this tree as, uh, as big mature bucks. Probably only had two big mature bucks visit it maybe two or three times each throughout the entire fall and winter. But it was getting rubbed multiple times every night by almost any deer in the woods. And it, it 
the more deer rub on it, yes, I guess that becomes a community scrape. But um, a buck doesn't rub a, a tree and determine what's going to be a community scrape and what's going to be uh, his only. And, you know, I, I don't know how all that works, but the bottom line is you can't determine the size of the buck by the size of the rub or the size of the scrape or where the scrapes made or anything like that. Um, and if you don't believe me, put a camera on. Yeah. And that'll answer your questions. Put multiple cameras on. Yeah. Yeah. And I hear some guys, you know, really focusing on rub lines and hunting rub lines and not hunting scrapes because, you know, there's some info out there on, uh, when scrapes are most likely visited is at night and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, man, I, 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 I will say there's one thing I really like. I read here not long ago that, that Dr. Crow put out was about all this different controversy, controversial topics, moon phase, ruts, trickle ruts, rubs, scrapes, weather, barometric pressure, cool fronts, all of these different factors. And they said, you know, how's this going to influence you going hunting? And, and his, his reply is it's not. The bottom line is season's open. I'm going to go hunting. There's a few factors that we know that hold true and that that time early morning and late evening before dawn, before dusk, whatever, those are high peak activity times. That's why we hunt in the morning and the evening a lot. Some guys sit all day, but you, I tell my crew around here, you can't kill them on the couch. Well, it's too hot. It's too cold. It's this, it's that. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that I wish I could tweak because I like hunting better under certain situations. Uh, but at the end of the day, you can't kill them on the couch. So that's right. Don't don't let that don't let that all this stuff, you know, try and become some scientific equation to when you're going to hunt or not. I mean, go go hunt. Just go hunt. If you're able to go, go. Yep. Yeah, no telling how many times I've said, well, I'm not going to go tomorrow because uh, weather's going to be this or weather's going to be that. But, you know, the truth is I've had these mature bucks on camera since I put cameras out back in July. Um, I watched her horns grow. It was 110 degrees some days with 90% humidity, and those deer were still moving. I had daytime pictures. I had nighttime pictures. They're still moving. They're still still walking in front of the camera and you know days that i said well i'm not gonna go tomorrow because it's raining i saw deer on camera i'm not gonna go tomorrow because it's hot i saw deer on camera well i'm gonna go tomorrow because it's gonna be a perfect day the perfect day is for us i mean you know because we want to hunt certain conditions that don't mean that that's because deer move better obviously we're going to see more deer on those kind of days because we're actually out there. We're not sitting on the couch. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if season, like you said, if season's open and you've got a chance to go and you want to hunt, don't let any of this be a factor. And okay. if you're not seeing mature deer, maybe habitat improvements will fix that. If you think you've got too many deer, maybe habitat improvements will fix that. If you're not seeing a peak of the rut, Maybe you need to think about shooting some does. Maybe you need to think about making some habitat improvements. Um, now, now, I know we've we've kind of sort of talked a little bit about genetics, but, you know, we, we I want to get this get this one in. We've 
we hear this from from hunters. Uh, I don't want to shoot that buck because I want to keep his genetics around. Yeah, I hear that a lot too. And you know, science have shown us that most mature bucks, from the time they reach uh, sexual maturity until they die, probably only truly sire a couple of fawns in their lifetime. Three or four is is a lot. Um, first off, you've got the genetics on your property because that deer's there. That deer wouldn't be there if you didn't have those genetics on your property. The chances of him breeding and making more of himself isn't going to change if you let him die of old age and let him breed every year that he's capable of doing it. You're not going to see a difference in that. And I mean, those are just the facts. And now, those different. You may have a doe. She may ha she may have twelve fawns or so in her lifetime. Um, you know, that's that's a little bit different. But you know, I thought this was pretty cool. One of the first DMAP meetings I ever went to, they said you got a doe that's in heat and standing around her. You've got a spike. You've got a four point. You've got an average. 115 inch eight pointer and you've got a 140 inch buck and a 180 inch buck all standing around this doe that's in heat which one of them's going to breed her all of them probably <laughs> every one of them every one of them's going to breed her which one is she going to get pregnant by whichever one has the fastest swimmers it's just that's just the way it works well and here's another fact you know probably 50 percent of that dna that you're trying to keep around or cull comes from your does that's right so how are you gonna look at a doe and say oh i know she produces a you know 12 points so i'm gonna leave her and this doe here she only produces you know small average eight points i'm gonna call her how, how i mean how, how can you even do that impacting genetics in free-range deer by shooting them harvesting them removing them it, that is a futile battle that's right. But now I feel like I need to bring this up. In the South, we use the word cull. Yeah. And yeah, we use the another. word management. Yep. Now, let me touch on what that is, because when I say the word cull, I know a lot of you Northern folks completely lose your mind over me saying the word cull. I, I, it does bother me. I, I'll tell you that. I, I, I hate that word. So what, what, People that know what they mean by the word cull is a buck that is never going to make the wall of fame. So if you have a hunting club and, and here we've got a wall that you have to be 140 to make it on the wall, 140 plus or something really unique. I mean, a, a stud four pointer with a 26 inch spread and, and 28 inch main beams would make the wall, but it's going to have to be something really unique. So if you've got a deer and, and the truth is, I think it's what's the, the average uh, mature buck in a lot of States is like 115 inches um, is, is like the average. And then you've got outliers on both sides of those. If you've got a buck that is mature and he's three and a half, four and a half plus, and he doesn't have brow tines, and he's got a little scrub rack that's small for his age, 
a lot of times that deer is called a management buck or a coal buck. And what we mean by taking him out is just no sense in feeding him 10 pounds of forage every day till he dies of old age. Um, that's what we mean by coal. Now, before you start attacking me on that, that's not just coming from me. I have read plans written by some of the best folks in the country and Dr. Steve Damaris, um, on a club a few years ago, he's with MSU Deer Lab, and on a club a few years ago, I read a plan written by him, and he identified a cull as any buck that is four and a half years of age and over that scores less than 130 inches. He he called that a cull, and then he had another term for a management buck, another description, and he had a separate description for a trophy. Now, we're not talking about your 40 acres in Wisconsin. We're not talking about your 60 acres in Michigan or Minnesota. We're talking about some of these big clubs in the South that struggle to have um, a lot of mature trophy bucks on the property. And there may be 50 or 60 members that are all hunting for a trophy. And we've got, you know, we're worried about nutrition. We're worried about, our our density versus our carrying capacity and you know these might be five seven ten thousand acre clubs in a lot of places um and there's no sense in keeping these bucks around that are going to be low scoring small right deer that have already reached maturity so that is when the term coal or management buck is used um now if uh that also keeps a guy from shooting a two and a half year old deer that's a 12 pointer and is already scoring 145 inches. We want to protect that deer till he reaches maturity and he's completely off limits. But we have no problem. And, and that goes back to that's why I'm so against a three point rule or a four point rule or something like that, because there is a lot of four pointers um, that are mature that would make somebody happy to shoot, but there's no sense in continuing to feed him till he dies of old age because he's doesn't meet the three point rule or the four point rule that the state's put out. Yeah. Now I will say this. I, I do think our three point rule that, that we have had largely across the state for several years has somewhat contributed to some better deer because it changed the culture. Yes. Not not necessarily, you know, my, it might not be perfect, yep. but it changed culture, especially, you know, in, in, I'll say South Arkansas, pick on them. And then in general, across the deal where guys started somewhat shifting their mindset to letting the deer get a little bit more mature. And that was the only marker that they were, possibly educated on was how many points does he have you know That's right. we've got to start somewhere yeah yeah and, and then i think the other thing is that still to this day blows my mind why guys had rather shoot a two and a half year old six or eight point than two does yeah that's still like how is a buck 
more prestigious because of you know the the whole trophy thing or whatever I guess, but than a five year old doe. I'm gonna tell you right now, five year old doe is a sharp, very sharp, elusive critter. I mean that sucker's head bobbing and everything that moves in the woods. She's stomping her foot. She's seen a thing or two. You kill you a doe like that, you have accomplished something. That that's right. I've been working here at the shop and heard deer walking through the woods blowing. I've been sitting on a tree stand and had deer way upwind of me, does walking through the woods blowing, scaring every deer off, but they just blow for no reason. And they fight off other does that uh, feed. And uh, and it, it's just, you know, to me, that's a bigger trophy. You know, I hate to use the word look down on people, but, you know, chances are if you if you value a young buck more than you value a doe and you think that's more prestigious chances are you're in just an inexperienced hunter yeah and, you know um i hear people say well you can't eat the horns i don't care what a shoot you can't eat the horns well that's even a better reason to just shoot a doe go right. shoot a doe now, yeah. it may be different in some places of the world, some of these outlying places where the deer density is extremely low and your herd is suffering and you don't have many deer. And, you know, it may make more sense to shoot a buck versus shooting a doe that's making the babies, you know, if your goal is to put more deer on the landscape. But that's not very many places anymore uh, a lot of the midwest and the southeast and even up north uh even up into canada have high enough deer densities that that's not an issue um and you know i don't expect everybody to be a mature buck purist but if it doesn't mean anything to you why is it why are you shooting bucks you know that's that's the part i just don't understand and, you know, I'm never going to get bent out of shape over a deer or what somebody shoots. The number one goal for every club, in my opinion, is to have experienced hunters. The only way you get experienced hunters is to share game cam pictures with them, to pull jawbones with them, to talk about age class, and to let them pull the trigger and get some deer under their belt. Because I promise you, if your first, if, if if your kid's first deer was a spike buck, he's going to be extremely proud of it, and you need to be extremely proud of it with him. But when he goes to school and his buddies have shot a mature eight point, guess what he's going to want to do next year? He's going to want to shoot a mature buck next year. Yep. So that a lot of that comes with you know with experience. You know we've got to, and I tell kids all the time. You know, we've got to get that first deer under your belt. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's fun. We got to get that first deer under your belt. Um, then, then we want to get the second deer under your belt. And I want to encourage you. I don't care what buck you shoot. I want you to shoot bucks. I want you to experience bucks and does until you become an experienced hunter. And I want you to try to better yourself every year. If you shot a little four-pointer next year, let's try for something bigger this year. If you shot one a little bigger this year, let's try for one a little bigger than that next year. And let's work our way up getting you experience hunting, experience pulling the trigger, experience aging deer on the hoof, 
experienced aging deer after that you've killed them with a jawbone or whatever. And then let's, let's work our way up to where you're experienced and you value the need to shoot does as well as mature bucks. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, um, I think that's, that's important. And another thing while, while we're in that, we, I mentioned aging, I hear a lot of people say, well, tooth wear and replacement is not a good way to age deer. Well, for what we do, for what, what we do for DMAP, it works fine. All we need to know is, was the deer mature or not? And if you know what you're doing, fawn one and a half and two and a half, the tooth wear and replacement method is 100%. There, there's no mistakes on, on that. If you know what you're doing, fawn one and a half to two and a half. From two and a half up is where it starts getting a little trickier. But when we're when we're analyzing the same deer on the same property, and all we need to know is the deer mature four and a half or older or immature four and a half and younger, then tooth wear and replacement works for us and works fine. Now, a more accurate method is the CA method where you send the tooth off and they count the rings and stuff at a lab and you're paying about $30 and you're waiting a few months and that kind of deal to have it done. But that is still not 100%. Now, it may be more accurate. You may get within a year or two closer than you can. But for what we're doing, I don't care I don't need to know if the deer is five and a half, six and a half, seven and a half, eight and a half, nine and a half years old. I don't need to know that. I just need to know is, was this buck mature or was it not? Was this doe mature or was she not? And if their teeth have a lot of wear on them versus very little wear, it's a pretty good indication that she's mature instead of immature. And we know we're 100% up to the age of two and a half with this method. So, Still yet, you're not 100% when you send a tooth off to a lab for the CA method. There's still, I think the last thing I read was about 60% that they're getting within a year or two. And it's 90% that they are within a couple of years. And uh, so that's not 100%, but it probably is more accurate than what we're doing. But for what we do, the tooth wear and replacement method works fine. Yep. yep. Or what we need to know. Yep. You know, I, I think all of this, that there's a big takeaway here. And that is, number one, go hunt and then learn. And in today's era of technology, when everybody pretty much has got a smartphone in their pocket, um, there's lots of different podcasts that are very, very good. There's lots of good research out there. There's lots of wonderful resources out there. And there might be some conflicting information. But for the most part, if you're going to credible sources, some of this stuff you can look at and read while you're sitting on a deer stand and on your smartphone. And there's just, there's no reason that we as hunters should not be more educated and more knowledgeable about the species that we're hunting uh, than what we are 
that will at least abolish some of these old wives tales. That that's right. Absolutely. 100%. Um, you've got to not just be a hunter. You've got to, to know something and understand the behaviors, the diets, uh, the patterns of, of these critters that you claim to love. Uh, you've got to learn something about them. Now, when we say credible source, we don't mean the brochure from your seed and feed salesman. That's not a credible source. Um, we're talking about studies. And like we mentioned earlier, um, uh, Brian Grossman has a podcast, um, NDA uh, podcast that, that he puts out pretty regularly. I don't know if it's once a week or what, but it's pretty regularly. And they go over a lot of this stuff. Uh, he's had Kip Adams on a couple of times talking about things and, you know, so they are a very reliable source. NDA is very reliable. MSU Deer Lab uh, with Dr. Uh, Damaris and Dr. Strickland, they are a very reliable source. Um, um, Georgia, you've got um, uh, uh, Dr. Will. Um, he's uh, he's really good. He puts out a lot of good stuff. Dr. Lashley. Uh, puts out a lot of good stuff from university of Florida. Um, Dr. Craig Harper, university of Tennessee. Those are credible, reliable sources. Those are the guys that have, um, graduate students or master students out doing, uh, GPS surveys and, and different things. And, you know, that, those are the reliable sources, not the brochure from your seed sales. Well, and, and with any of those guys you mentioned, I, I can find fault with all of them. You you can find fault with me and you. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and and they may say a thing or two that I'm like, uh, they may value, uh, they may place more emphasis on a food plot, let's say, That's or right. they may place more emphasis on this, that, or the other. And sometimes the communication is disrupted um, in the fact that you have to understand where they're coming from, what perspective they have. Uh, you know, versus just a sentence or a paragraph that they wrote or said, you have to understand it more contextually. But at the same time, for the most part, all of these people who are what I would consider to be your industry professional research, you know, type type folks, they're they're pretty much on the same page. I mean, it's kind of like uh, tooth wear and replacement. There may be a little variance here, but in the overall scheme of things and the overall message, most of them are going to align. And that's the beauty of science is the alignment of the peers. Um, while one might have a little bit different over here and a little bit different over there, the overall message is pretty much seamless and the same. That's right. That's right. I think that's a good note to end this on. You know, like you said, the bottom line is we need to educate ourselves. I mean, you may be, and I know some guys that are phenomenal deer hunters that have killed a, a bunch of big stud deer, but they still don't really know anything about the science behind growing bucks. Um, they think they do, but in the, in the end, um, they're still clinging to some myths 
some false hopes, some old wives' tales, grandpa's theory from years ago. And we've learned that a lot of that is just not true these days. That's right. That is right. And I, and I can tell you this, I'm not discrediting the, we use this word experienced hunter a lot. And I think what, it, what that means to me is, is a little different. Like my grandfather was a very experienced hunter. Yeah, absolutely. He, he killed more. He trapped more. He depended on it for survival. Yep. Um, but at the same time, when it come to, to management of the species, he did not know a, a, a 10th of what I know. That's right. Yeah. No. My, my grandfather was the same way. Um, a phenomenal Turkey hunter, a phenomenal deer hunter. He started deer hunting the second year that Missouri had a deer season. Um, he didn't go the first year he got invited. His buddies went, he said he wasn't going to shoot a deer. If he wanted something to eat, he'd walk out in the pasture and shoot a cow. And he wasn't, he didn't think it'd be any fun, but they come back talking about how much fun they had. And he never missed a deer season from the second year Missouri actually had one. And he killed his biggest buck to date uh, using a walker, a gun sling for the first time so he could put it over his shoulder and use both hands on his walker. And he had painted his walker black and went and bought tennis balls uh, black tennis balls to put on the feet so they didn't make noise on the rocks and killed his biggest buck to date that my cousin still has mounted on his wall today. Um, he was an experienced hunter, but he didn't know anything about managing for him. Yep. And I think that's where the disconnect comes in. You know, we're not disparaging anybody uh, and anything, but, you know, where I draw the line for me is, there's so much opportunity now for you to learn and be exposed to factual things that we've learned through credible sources that are, are well-established. And so now to me, where I guess if I'm going to draw a line in the sand is your choice to remain ignorant. And I tell this to my son all the time, there's two things in life that'll make you successful. And that's effective communication and being a lifelong learner. That's right. If you want to add anything else to that, you know, we could say work ethic and, and those types of deals. But if you nail down those three communication, lifelong learner and a work ethic, you, you can succeed, man. And there's so much out there now that, that the average hunter has access to. Uh, I mean, you just should be a little more exposed and, and understand a little bit more about what's available out there and quit clinging to, some of these old wives tales that's right well i think that's a good note to end this on we've been going on here for a while so uh we thank you all for tuning in and we'll catch you next week on the sawdust and fire podcast thank you all